0: All right, so it's uh, a tale of toy, a tale of two toy companies today. Mattel Shares shooting up, you're going to like this, Jason, like a space rocket Barbie. Really? really. Hey! Yeah. Hasbro Shares slipping like Mr. Potato Head on a banana peel.
1: Did you come up with these yourself? Yep. Whoa!
0: I know worked really this hard.
1: Claritin is working.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about earnings from Hasbro and Mattel because they are definitely getting uh, different reactions from investor Matt Townsend just watching, saying, "Can I just finish with you two and move <laughs> on? Can I, just,
1: can I just get back to my desk? Please, please? No, let no, me out."
0: He's global business reporter Friday. at Business uh, at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Inter- uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. <laughs> I'm also a little tired. Okay, so tell us, Mattel, it's up more than twenty percent.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, nuts. It's, 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 you know, this, again, this kind of goes back to the expectations game. Mm. Uh, Mattel has been struggling for a long time. They're basically like in the fourth year of a turnaround. Um, the big story is the Toys R Us liquidation right. last year. So a lot of investors or analysts are looking at this and saying, so Mattel basically took their medicine earlier, sort of got rid of a lot of inventory last fourth quarter. And so maybe that's why their fourth quarter looks uh, comparably better than Hasbro, Um Hasbro's sales were down 13 percent. Mattel was just 5.4, so that's part of it. And then you know, Mattel has had uh, a resurgence with its Barbie brand. You know, we pointed out that the brand is back over a billion dollars for the year, which hasn't happened since 2014. Um, and brands like Hot Wheels are doing well as well. T- also, with Hasbro, they're very much tied to entertainment. 2017, or 2018 was not a great year for their en- entertainment properties that they're tied to. This year. Um, they have a Star Wars film. They have Frozen 2. So they're much more you know, bullish on this year. because right, they, have, now, they
0: right? have the Disney contract now, They have the Disney
2: contract. They have Marvel. They basically have the big t- toy licenses, um, entertainment licenses. So I think that's basically what's driving the divergence in the stock, a big part of it.
1: And will they eventually converge again, or are we seeing something more secular here with these two companies in terms of their going forward prospects?
2: that's the big question. I mean, basically it's after this first quarter, the quarter where now the Toys R Us noise is basically over. Yeah. So it's what's the underlying businesses look like going forward. And that's what we're really going to see. You know, it depends who you ask. I mean, some people are still are very bullish on Hasbro because they have Marvel. They have Star Wars, even though there's, there's been some softness with Star Wars. Um, and, you know, Mattel has a lot to prove. They want to basically turn a lot of their properties into entertainment brands. They're, they have a Barbie movie in the works. They have a Hot Wheels movie in the works. They have a Masters of the Universe movie in the works. Whoa. And we'll see how those do. We'll see how those how do and if they can drive toy here. sales.
0: So, wait, is it a case of also, Matt, them just kind of recreating their channels in terms of distribution and selling? I mean, this is what they've got to kind of figure out.
2: Exactly. The big question is, is the liquidation of Toys R Us going to permanently hurt demand for toys? Right. Or is it just going to be sucked up by other places like Walmart, Target, Amazon? From what I hear, kids still like toys. Yeah. It's funny. I was saying in the office today that one of the sort of cliches in the toy industry is that whatever happens, Christmas will come (laughs) and parents will buy toys for their kids. So that still is obviously what happens. It's just a matter of, you know, is there any way that this could permanently damage the industry, the Toys R Us liquidation?
1: And it is interesting to go back to a point you made earlier, how tied... In It is to entertainment because the other issue with Hasbro or one of the issues with Hasbro is Transformers, which for several yes. years, thanks to Shia LaBeouf, I guess, was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, you know, doing quite well.
2: Yeah, it, it was it's a, it's a juggernaut. It was basically the first sort of example of you take a toy property and turn it into a uh, entertainment franchise. And yeah, it's it, the brand has not been doing as well. They had a movie come out in December, uh, a spinoff called Bumblebee, Bumblebee where they World. really tried to shift to more of a family-friendly film, attract more girls and, and moms to the brand. The movie was widely heralded from the critical perspective, but the box office did not live up to the previous films. Yeah. It got a
1: lot of really good early notices. I remember being surprised by that, not really knowing what it was and then being like, wait, this is a Transformers. It has like a 93
2: on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics. (laughs) Wow. But it was the the worst performing box office film of the six live action Transformer films. So it's, there's a lot to be, there's a lot of question marks about that brand. Um, So yeah, we'll see. I mean, the, you know, uh, you know, Frozen 2, right? Can Frozen become what it was no. six years ago no. when the first movie came out? Carol um, says no. It's a, cla-
0: it's a classic. Like, you can't muck You're saying that out it. loud. Although, look at it. We're doing Toy Story 4.
2: Toy Story 4. Disney and Pixar, right? uh, The Aladdin live-action films coming out. Lion
1: King live-action coming out. Is that where
0: the value is, though, Matt? Is it in terms of those franchises where they might have legs, you know, multiple movies and then the products, versus coming up with a new cool cabbage patch or something?
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting. Mattel, the new CEO. That's going
1: back.
0: (laughs) I know, I know. The the
2: new CEO, Mattel, is from the the entertainment world, and he, he basically came to the company and said, we have all this intellectual property that we're not really leveraging enough. So, since he's gotten there, they've started a film division. They've gotten new production deals for, like I said, Barbie, Hot Wheels, and... He Man, Masters of the Universe. He Man,
1: I, I love that. <laughs> that's the best thing I've heard all day. He Man and that the Skeletor. Like a, <gasps> oh yeah. my God! Well, you remember
2: there was a He-Man. film already with uh, Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, which it, is a huge was, bomb. It so was not good. Try to Oh my God, on I'm that. losing these two. I'm yeah. losing them.
0: That's. Well, you
1: brought up Cabbage Patch Kids, so I think that's your. Big I'm just contribution.
0: saying, like you know, that there were those toys that used to like make everybody crazy. Yeah, the
2: nostalgia Sometimes. effect. You bring back an old toy brand from the 80s or 90s. Those fans have kids now. Right. It's worked over and over again. You know. Does it work for everything? No, but it's worked enough that they'll just keep doing it over and over again. Is
0: American Girl working for Mattel anymore? No.
2: American Girl is struggling. Uh, It's in a a turnaround. Um, You know, a lot of reasons why, but, you know, the big thing is it just they lost some of the juice that they they had. They lost that generation of kids, girls that grew up with it, trying to recapture um, you know, I guess some of those fans have kids now, too. So maybe they'll try to do the nostalgia thing. All right, and I'm, I have to
0: say, for my daughter, it wasn't like I have to – she had a bunch and was like, yeah, let's sell them. Like, <laughs> like no, I'm serious. Let's make some money. Yeah.
2: I, I still have my Star Wars action figures. So there,
1: there you go. go. Well, Star Wars lives forever. Really? Matt Townsend, really? global business reporter <laughs> on the Toy Beat. Jason, you have the so G.I. Joe oh, collection, G.I. right? Joe's. It's like
0: $300 yeah. on Walmart. Oh,
3: my God. I, I know. G.I. Joe. Uh, go, let's not Joe. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Let's get into this Jeff Bezos story. Jeff Bezos and Amazon probably taking up more oxygen than any other CEO and company today on the Bloomberg Terminal and candidly sort of out in the business world. Spencer Soper tracks that closer than anybody. He joins us on the phone from our Seattle bureau. So, Spencer, let's start with Bezos and the National Enquirer, which is candidly just a a riveting story that I think no one saw coming. Bring us up to date on the latest.
4: Okay, so the latest dropped uh, yesterday with a Medium post from Jeff Bezos in which he revealed these email exchanges between his representatives and the National Enquirer's representatives. And he's basically accusing the National Enquirer and AMI Uh, media of uh, blackmailing him, Um, there was a proposed deal from the Inquirer in there that they would refrain refrain from publishing graphic pictures that Bezos uh, had taken of himself and sent to his girlfriend, which the Inquirer obtained, that they would refrain from publishing those pictures if Bezos ceased his private investigation into how the Inquirer obtained these pictures in the first place
0: you know that's kind of my big question how the heck did he get uh, that somebody get them but it kind of digs deeper to this back and forth between Trump and Bezos has been going on for a while right we've seen Donald Trump certainly push back against the company in terms of what the Postal Service charges Amazon for shipping and we've seen some other post you know some pushback it, certainly the president's been very critical uh, often about what uh, how the Washington Post has covered his administration um, but there's there's another angle to this, and this has to do with um, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. Tell us a little bit about that. That was an earlier cooperation deal with prosecutors um, that the National Enquirer and their parent company had. Tell me about that.
4: Yeah, so that's how this does tie back into Trump. Still tangentially Mm -hmm. um, with respect to Bezos, but that's how this agreement potentially does in the sense that there was an agreement Uh, an agreement between the Inquirer and these prosecutors. And basically what that agreement uh, entailed was that they, in exchange for the Inquirer providing information that helped these uh, investigators looking into allegations of um, misappropriation of funds and things regarding uh, Donald Trump's alleged extramarital affairs that, uh, you know, exchange with their their help – On those that they would uh, uh, not be criminally prosecuted, but now this latest allegation of extortion could, um, you know, short circuit that that agreement.
0: Right, AMI agreed not to commit crimes as part of that deal, right, to avoid prosecution over hush money uh, payments to women who claim relationships with President Trump. So that puts all of that in jeopardy.
1: Yeah. So, Spencer. Shifting gears a little bit closer to home here for us in New York City is this deal maybe that's falling apart to move part of HQ2 to Long Island City. Wow, that happened fast. Yeah, there was a a
4: story in the uh, Washington Post today attributed to anonymous sources that Amazon was reconsidering um, this move. We've done some reporting ourselves that's kind of You know, throwing some skepticism Mm -hmm. on how serious this reconsideration might be. Um, We have some sources telling us that uh, people have already been, you know, executives within Amazon have already been notified about the need to uh, relocate to New York and that uh, within Amazon, the... Motion is full steam ahead, so there's definitely some questions about the timing of this story and whether it could even be a political ploy just to try to tamp down some of the opposition that has really, really, uh, you know, been you know running forward like a like a freight train um, to try to tamp some of it down. But um, but yes, that would be the news is that there's some reconsideration going on about this move.
0: So. Uh, you know we've really been trying to stress the importance of these stories or lack thereof what it means for the company amazon right we think about investors so w- should investors be concerned with all of this today spencer
4: well on the on the Inquirer front so far they aren't um you you and and here's why you know this isn't all of his uh, relationship stuff, it's a personal matter. There's no allegations that even it was work-related or could blow up into, you know, um, uh, sexual harassment lawsuits or anything like that. So that— that's off the table. And then, you know, the, so then the next thing is, okay, is it is it going to distract him? Um, and Bezos seems to be trying to preempt that. There was one particular line in his Medium post that jumped out to me where he emphasized, oh, I hired this investigative team to look into this, and I and I told them to prioritize protecting my time. And I felt like right there, even though he's kind of in the muck and fighting this fight with the Inquirer, he was signaling to investors, like, don't worry, I've got my best people on it so I can focus on the company. Um, so, you know, the investors really haven't haven't reacted right. to, to this much at all. And in terms of the HQ expansion, uh, I mean, you know, so what? Maybe they right. go to another city. Investors don't really even care, care about that very much. They just want to got know it. that they can get right. the talent they need.
1: Spencer, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for those insights. Spencer Soper out in Seattle.
0: Investors, man. They are snapping up speculative corporate debt. We're talking about high yield, a.k.a. junk. And in doing so, maybe ignoring some longer-term warning signs. Let's get into this with Brian Chapata. He is debt markets columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to have you here. Thanks for being. Thanks for
5: having me. So tell me, tell me what you're
0: finding or what you're seeing.
5: Well, I mean, it's a complete U-turn. It's almost a straight V, actually. Uh, if you look at the sort of total return index uh, for junk bonds uh, – December was an awful month. It was the worst since uh, December 2015, and no issuance came. They still lost 2.5%. And all of a sudden, it comes roaring back, 5% returns already so far this year, and we just saw the biggest inflow into high-yield funds uh, since July 2016. So there's been a complete about-face in a really short period of time. And it seems like the easy money is probably gone now. All right. So let's take a step
1: back and remind people how this sort of fits into uh, the investing world. Because you covered this as a reporter, and we were talking about this before you came in here. Now you have the luxury of being an opinionator uh, out there. <laughs> R- remind us how, this all fits, how it all fits in.
5: Well, I mean, junk bonds are really, really sensitive to recession risk. Uh, the big risk in high yield is that there will be defaults. You get paid a high interest rate. And as a result, you absorb the risk of the fact that the companies will go under. So the big question right now is, are we headed towards a recession or are we headed towards a period of 2% growth? 2% growth is probably good enough for a good number of high-yield companies to stay alive and pay bondholders' interest, which is all they care about. Um, But it's an open question. And there's a New York Fed model that suggests the 25% chance of recession 12 months from now, which is the highest probability that has been since 2008.
0: You know, it's so funny because I actually mentioned that this morning on air, on TV, and somebody was kind of questioning that, you know, can we really follow that model Any more, considering kind of all of the quantitative easing that we've seen out of the Fed, that it's kind of a different world, uh, does the model still work?
5: I mean, that's going to (laughs) be a question when it happens, right? I mean, I think one of the big questions going forward, uh, the Fed is on pause, and the Fed has been able to raise interest rates a bit, at least better than its central bank counterparts. But the question is, how much ammunition is there? Should there be an economic slowdown? do uh, central bankers have to to counteract this? Um, And if you believe that quantitative easing is the answer and that that will – buoy markets and salvage the economy, then there definitely does seem to be some firepower from the Fed.
0: What did we hear from Vince earlier? Vince Signorella, right? The possibility of actually, what, an interest rate cut? Cut in June. June. And you do wonder, I mean, you do wonder if some of this stuff can turn so quickly.
5: I really, I mean, I think that they would, I mean, as far as the Fed goes, um, my interpretation of, of, of Jay Powell's thinking is that he would definitely just say, okay, fine, balance sheet, we're done, calm down. We're going to stop the runoff. We're going to leave it where it is now. I think he would do that before they would even consider say a, a rate cut, unless there was something really – dramatic that happened. In We're the just going to chill here uh, yeah. for a while. I mean, one of the other interesting things
1: to me about the the high yield uh, market, the, the junk bond market, is really the role it plays in takeovers. You know, one of the uh, companies you cite, uh, Clear Channel, you know, that's one of these, you know, legacy, I believe, keep me honest here, legacy right. LBOs, you know, from back in the day. Uh, yeah. You know, that's, it also offers us a window into, you know, kind of who's buying and selling, especially in the private equity world.
5: Yeah, it's definitely a Sense of sort of economic activity and potential, you know, uh, you know, exuberance in the you know markets for M and A and sort of buying, uh, you know, PE, what have you. Um, leverage loans were a huge deal last year, for example, right. um, and it's since uh, slowed at least a little bit now. Um, so we'll see. And yeah, you're definitely right that uh, that high yield junk bonds, leverage loans, those are definitely signs of you know whether. Credit is really flowing throughout the system, which is a sign of a healthy economy, um, or whether you know the the spigots turned off.
0: Well, and you do wonder, like, if all of a sudden you know things ought- turn out to be much worse than everybody anticipated, these guys who are plowing money into high yield could really be caught in a tough spot.
5: Yeah, I think that's one of the big reasons why the Fed's balance sheet, uh, for you know whatever reason, is catching the market's attention because it feels like that is a liquidity drain, and it is a liquidity drain. I think it's maybe overstated a little bit by market participants, but. Um, The balance sheet reduction gets people concerned that there's not enough liquidity in the system, which will then – exacerbate any sort of problem in high yield or any of these sort of low liquidity markets. So while we have you here, and, and I'm really glad you're here in part because
1: I loved your column about Bill Gross uh, earlier this week. That was probably one of the biggest moments, one of the biggest news moments we've seen in sort of the bond market, maybe the, the broader
5: investment market. What, what most, was your take on that?
0: It's the most read story of the week, Yeah, the, the week,
5: way. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, it was an interesting moment just because it was sort of the end of an era and you sort of contemplate the role of Management going forward, you know Bill Gross was famous for having a total return fund now total return funds every single asset manager has a total return fund they 're sort of ubiquitous I mean, he, was
0: tra- um, t- he was a trailblazer yeah. to be fair
5: and you know his his last act was an unconstrained fund, and tom Kean 's interview with him, I felt like really pointed out the fact. That he sort of said maybe it you know maybe unconstrained wasn't the right move for me maybe 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 it doesn't work maybe it's not so easy to get hedge fund like returns uh, as a as a manager who I mean he obviously knows the bond market incredibly well mm-hmm. uh, he was in it for a long time um, but he made these bets and was trying to capture five ten percent returns in a market that wasn't going to give it to pretty much any bond manager so. Um, it really raised a lot of a lot of interesting questions, um, and I think. Uh, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, so, so he, he was he was a controversial figure in some ways, but I think people are, are are really respectful of him, you know, even if they had their differences.
1: And it is interesting to think about, you know, this whole active passive debate. debate. You you think about the retirement of Bill Gross. You think about the passing of Jack Bogle. You know, like all yeah. the,
5: the, the sort of what? seminal moments that we've had of the, you know, some of the biggest names. Well, I actually wrote a column about Vanguard. And actually, surprisingly, they actually have a pretty large active management. Isn't that uh, amazing? Yeah, especially what? in the, especially in the bond space. Yeah. And
0: what's interesting, we were talking about ETFs on the air this morning, the equity space, but these ETFs that you assume are following indices, which so many do, right? An index of sorts. And now you're seeing much more actively managed ETFs, which I find kind of fascinating. And
5: and these factor ETFs that use sort of quantitative yeah. Uh, yeah. methods, uh, I think are, are really becoming more of a thing as well. Uh, Invesco just launched some, for example. So uh, really interesting times as far as if you are an investment manager, what kind of, uh, yeah. you know, fees you can expect to reap going forward. Um,
0: People are, investors definitely pushing back big time. Brian Tapata, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. He is our Debt Markets columnist with our Bloomberg Opinion Group. We could be so good together. Yeah, so good together. All
1: right, so, Carol, you know, both of us like sports. We do. Uh, But we also love the collision of athletes, sports. Love it business investment. Jared Robbins is the president of No Sweat, joins us from Minneapolis, where that company is based. So Jared, tell us what this is. This is exciting.
6: Yes, thanks for having me on today. So No Sweat is a performance liner that goes inside any different types of headwear, whether it's hats, helmets, visors, hard hats, and deals with a common issue of sweat uh, going into people's eyes, the sweat irritation to skin, and also uh, the damage sweat can do on a hygiene plate to hats and helmets while you're out in the field or in play.
0: I have to say, um, when I, when was, I, when I yeah. first started reading about it, I'm like, wait, this is a business? And then I thought, oh, yeah, like think about how many people, how many athletes, right? Um, this is a way of kind of making it more comfortable, I would assume, right?
6: Yes, and it's, it's been a huge success, especially when we started with the NHL. Every single NHL team at this point uses the product. It's big in Major League Baseball. Uh, we're an official licensed product of the PGA Tour now, so we have multiple athletes on tour using the product. And we're looking to branch out out of the sports space and into the you know industrial, construction, military, and food prep spaces over the next year or so
1: so tell us about kind of the the methods and the the nuances of linking athletes with products because you've essentially made a career of this you know you you've been able to really navigate that and we do see athletes really owning their personal brands uh, in a lot of ways, looking for things. You know, we spent some time recently with Shaquille O'Neal, who mm-hmm. is incredibly savvy, as you know, at sort of what he puts his name on. How do you do it? What's or the Radio secret? Row
0: at the Super Bowl, right. like talking to athletes and, and kind of the either affiliations, organizations, or products that they're connected with. I'm sorry, Jason, Co. So how do you do it?
1: So
6: it started about... Ten years ago when I was getting out of college, um, I was lucky enough to intern for Gene Upshaw at the NFL PA. Sure. And also had a few friends that made the NFL. And what I noticed is as owners and team sports uh, with the fans use the players to make money off of, you got to flip the switch here and think use the athletes to make money for themselves and using sports that way. Since their career spans are really aren't that long, so they need something after sports. Uh, I taught, you know, networking through meeting different athletes and pitching them and making them understand the opportunities they have or not what the general, you know, population would and in figuring out what products would be a legitimate investment. I've noticed that, you know, the guys are trying to and girls are trying to make the best of their livelihoods and are very interested in being entrepreneurial.
0: Well, and to be fair, it
6: started with yeah, it started with a couple guys, and now it's you know I've dealt with probably close to fifty people at this point.
0: Well, I'm just thinking too; those opportunities aren't necessarily going to be around forever. And it's interesting that you say this because I was thinking about a conversation that we had with Charlie Ebersole yesterday, and you know, creating another um, football league. But what's interesting in terms of what he's doing is he's also thinking about financial literacy uh, and making sure that, you know, kind of approaching it differently, like getting them certainly in the game, but also trying to provide education and, like I said, really kind of understand how to kind of protect their finances.
6: Yeah, it's it's a big thing that I've noticed, and, and you're seeing a lot of schools now offering for professional athletes to get, these MBAs during the off season. And, you know, now that I sort of branched out past the consulting play with the athletes finding investments and now from the company perspective and actually starting our series a round of financing. Now I'm, I'm fully understanding the full circle of the importance of the education process for each individual athlete to understand how a simple investment could really change the way that they look at, you know, for their families and, and outside of sports once they're done with their careers.
1: And so what have you learned about either different sports or different types of athletes? Obviously, the longevity is different in, say, professional golf than maybe it is in the NFL. Uh, so how do you manage those different relationships? How do you ascertain what's the right thing for the right sport and the right athlete?
6: Well, the first thing I'd say is you have to have a ton of patience because, uh, it's not It's not easy to sometimes get in touch with some of these people as their schedules are crazy. But more importantly, there's, you know, you see the 30 for 30 document uh, documentaries on, you know, athletes going broke. And yeah. for every person like myself that's trying to find the best situations for the people, there are also 10 to 20 people out there that are just looking out for the best interests of themselves. So, totally. you know, trying to... Like I said, the the patience game, because you try to step aside and be a little different than everyone else, you got to sort of understand that sometimes you might not hear from someone for six months at a time. And, you know, someone who's on a rookie wage is not going to look at the same type of investment that someone's probably in their second or third contracts. And, you know, maybe yeah. someone's making $100 million for someone who's making – you know, $2 million, you know, pre-tax, pre-agents and all that. So there, there's a lot of different things that have to
0: come into right. play. Right, exactly. Uh, at that. Jared, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you. Jared Robbins, he's president of No Sweat, uh, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. I'm
1: in my car.
0: Yes, indeed. Just about uh, 11 and a half minutes to the closing bell on this Friday, wrapping up another week where we might see actually uh, the S&P 500 a little bit lower for the week overall. But we are seeing today stocks off their lows of the session. So let's get into the market environment. Back with us is Michael Tiedemann. He's CEO and Chief Investment Officer at the firm that bears his name. He is with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here with us.
3: Thank you for having me back.
0: So we said what we wanted to kind of kick off with is what are you seeing in the general environment? Because Dave Wilson, who put out a chart today, his chart of the day, and it's really like we are looking desperately for some kind of trend line. And we really don't seem – we thought we had it in January, but then all of a sudden Friday came, uh, February came along.
3: Well, with equity markets, yeah. we uh, clearly were technically a bit of a no-man's land. Uh, yeah. We think the fundamentals – are in general very, very good across the country in terms of uh, if you go across the variety of cities and the banking sector is healthy. Valuations are more attractive than they've been, obviously off of their lows in December. Uh, so it, you know we're in the squishy part of the equity market in terms of trading. In a technical be, term, squishy. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> one of our favorites. And uh, it, you know, we, we try not to make too much about short-term moves. December proved to be a great opportunity for people of long-term horizons to put money to work. There were assets like mid-cap U.S. equities, which really got disproportionately sold off where the fundamentals are less involved with the trade-related issues. Closed-end funds of assets that were the NEVs were selling off, but then the discounts expanded to 15%. So you're able to really put money to work at pretty substantial discounts, or certainly at attractive levels. Did you guys put we money did. to work? A lot we of did. money? Yeah, we, we were very unpopular with our uh, employees during the holiday week. You so <laughs> were busy, right? It was, we were busy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so it, you know, one of the interesting things, and and this is it really dovetails nicely with one of the things we were literally just talking about, Carol and myself. One of the most read stories is about uh, the ultra, like the ultra ultra rich, and you know, sort of how they uh, spend their money. How many of them there are candidly, and you work uh, largely with ultra high net worth uh, individuals, families, trusts, foundations, uh, and the like. These have become very sophisticated investors. I would imagine that. Your job has actually gotten a little harder over the years because it's probably not just like, hey, Michael, you know, here's some money. I trust you. Go do your thing. Uh, they have a lot of big ideas. And the the things that they want to do and are able to do and you that you enable them to do are much more varied. Opportunity zones is something that I know you're interested in. How does an individual investor, even a very wealthy one, play something like that?
3: Well first of all, so this is a great question. So uh, opportunity zones in general are both exciting and uh, very important to understand and very nuanced. So as the more we've looked at the intentions, honestly I think are sincere and very good and they're trying the, the code the tax code is attempting to attract.
0: And this was part of President Trump's yes. tax overhaul.
3: Correct. Yeah. Well, but the regs were really just recently released in October. Right. So people are scrambling in the year of 2018 to try to figure out what they could do in that calendar year. But effectively, it's allowing a transfer of, uh, well, uh, really a deferral and possibly an entire deferral or exclusion of tax gain on an asset. So the simplest example is you have owned Apple stock for 20 years, and you say, geez, it's now a 15% position I'd, I'd be a little, little more comfortable for a 10% position. I'm going to take 5% of that and invest in the opportunity zone. If you Once that capital transitions and is reinvested into a building, and I can talk about some of the nuances of businesses versus hard assets of buildings, after seven years, there's a deferral until seven years, but post 10 years, your basis actually steps up. So you have an ex- exclusion of taxes on that transfer, and then now you what you own with that Five percent position that used to be an apple. You now own a building in a neighborhood. Michael, how do you? At a
1: much more favorable, with a much more favorable tax rate. Ultimately,
3: right. uh, Well, I mean, yes. I mean, the the real estate is famously known for shielding income. So, along the ten or let's call it seven years of three years of the first three years of development. And then the next seven years are income-producing. You obviously have some depreciation sales yeah. and what have you. But at the end, you really have avoided a tax gain. So the intent is to try to do good in these communities. Mm-hmm. The impact investing community is rightfully concerned that this capital is not is really going to gentrify neighborhoods, which doesn't help the cause of you know, workplace or uh, affordable housing. Or
0: go into areas, and we've covered this in the magazine, or go into areas that are – Quote unquote opportunity zones, but they've already started to turn, right? right? There's opportunity zones that really do need help to turn. And then there are opportunity zones that are kind of already on their way, but you do see them, you see investors going into that area.
3: Yeah. And so as an investor, you still have to, you're still making an investment. You're making two decisions. One is what asset you're selling, and understanding that there's a tax deferral or avoidance altogether if you wait 10 years. But ultimately, you're still making a real estate investment in a neighborhood. And you should be thinking about the underlying appreciation of that. Uh, There are ways to combine both impact in sort of workplace or affordable housing um, with – I'm involved with a charity that's actually raising a fund, and they also have city funding. And the bottom two floors will be focused on uh, the opportunity zone component Mm. for their investors, and then the top eight floors will be – affordable housing.
0: Where, where are you doing this? Or where In you, New York. In it's co- all in France, New York. So yeah. it's in this Sorry, yeah. our
3: company is doing it. Sorry, the charity is doing it in New York. The company is doing it across the country and we're working with groups that every city and every code, the code is the same, but really the opportunities and risks in the cities are very nuanced and different.
1: Right. And what are you seeing in terms of appetite on the part of clients for this versus say hedge funds or private equity or more traditional uh, real estate investments?
3: So, again, uh, high, but also learning. So there's a a lot of questions about it, and I think uh, we are really coming now with a full-blown recommendation and approach because there are some funds that are out there that are raising a fair amount of money very quickly that are large brand-name firms, and then there are ones that are doing in a REIT structure. Mm -hmm. But our concern with that is that you may not be able to control the exit i.e. if the building is sold in six years or eight years and not 11 or 12 or beyond that where you really get maximize the tax impact
0: what is the impact um we've only got about 40 seconds that we do see on the community does it create a revival and does it also push kind of locals out because this is that housing problem of like great developers build these beautiful homes but at the same time we need to think about kind of all the people that need to live in a community
3: right well, the jobs are one part, but are the jobs sourcing from those neighborhoods? I mean, there, again, that's the nuances, and it, it really we don't know. I mean, yeah. we're not going to try to really project that. Well, because
0: I wondered if there was kind of an impact, as you said, impact investing component it, right. Whereas, if I was an investor, I want I would want to make sure that you know we're kind of taking care of the community. The
3: tax code can still very much apply to people who want to create, you know, impact-oriented. Right. Yeah. Uh, place-based, uh, focused on you know, low-income and affordable housing.
0: It's definitely a hot topic, because we've been talking about it a lot, yeah. and we've had it in the magazine. Michael, thank you. Thank you. Michael Tiedemann, he's Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at Tiedemann Advisors, joining us, based in New York, but he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg Radio.